Well, let me say good morning again, and now let me say welcome not only to those of you who are here in the contemporary service, but welcome also to those of you who are joining us right now in the traditional sanctuary or via broadcast. I'm really glad that we have the opportunity that we have to learn from God's Word together as one church family, even if we happen to be in different places. And speaking of learning from God's Word, I want to invite you to read and follow along in your Bibles if you'd like as we learn together this morning. So if you don't have a Bible with you but you'd like to use one, our ushers are going to bring, be bringing Bibles up the aisles in both of our worship venues in just a moment. And if you'd like to borrow one from them during this service, please feel free and you can just put it back on the table or the rack in the back of the room after worship today. The story that we heard introduced to us from the Bible today and that we're going to learn from is a story of an amazing journey, really. It's a story of God sending these two guys whose names are Barnabas and Saul, who's also sometimes called Paul, and God sends them out on this incredible international missionary journey. And on the way, they encountered some really tough challenges. They climbed some really steep hills. And in this time today of learning from God's Word together, we're going to learn about the hills that we face in life sometimes, the hills that we have to climb, and about the strength that it takes to make it to the top of those hills. And before we get started, really, I need to just sort of admit to you that I have kind of a complicated relationship with hills. (laughs) On the one hand, I really like hills. If you ask, like, seems like people are kind of beach people or mountain people when it comes to vacations. I'm totally a mountain guy. I like hiking in the mountains. I like camping in the mountains. I even like running in the mountains and in the hills. And years ago, when I used to be more of a, a when I used to run more races, I ran this race a long time ago. It was a really hilly course. I was kind of making the transition from high school running to college running. So this was like 300 years ago. It was a long time. And I was uh, running on this course, and it was the hilliest course that my team would run on all year. Just brutal. Big invitational meet. And I felt like kind of where I was at in my running and that course, that I had a decent chance to compete for the top spot in that race. And the race takes off. And we started running around this big field, kind of a level, open, grassy field for about a half a mile. And then we made a right turn down a hill, and you ran downhill, and you kind of went over this hilly territory until you came back up again and then finished on that top area again. We go down this hill. Now, I don't know how many of you ever have run cross-country races or ever even seen them run. I'm guessing it's not many people. But when you're running down a hill like that in a competitive race, you are just flying. You are li- you're out of control running as fast as you can. I'm sure that I was running down this hill faster than I could sprint on flat ground. So we're flying down this hill. And as I'm running down this hill, all of a sudden, I plant my right foot in a hole or a rut of some kind. And suddenly, I am literally flying down this hill, right? Doing my best Superman impersonation. I think I might have gone into the lead for just a second. And then all of a sudden, shoulder and right cheek into the gravel. And I'm going like careening, head over heels, down the hill. Eventually, I skidded to a stop. I got back up again, and the lead pack is out of sight. I can't even see him anymore. And I got up, and I was fortunately not hurt as badly as it sounds like. I probably should have been, although maybe the gravel explains my face. I don't know, but we're running down the hill. And I get up, right, and I can tell that I just, you know, I'm kind of stiff and tight and bruised, and I'm not injured so badly that I can justify quitting the race, right? I, I'm not, I, can, I can finish the race, but I can't run like I had trained to run or like I was running 15 seconds earlier or whatever it was or like I should have. And then I get to the hills that are going to go back uphill, and I find that there's actually a little bit of a relief in this (laughs) because suddenly I can't run up the hills as fast as I used to. And strangely enough, being injured hurt less than the actual activity of running. So for those of you who ever wonder why do runners do what they do, this is a great time to ask that question because I have no answer. (laughs) It was kind of a relief. I have a complicated relationship with hills. On the one hand, 
I like them. I, I think it's a, you know, I enjoy that challenge. On the other hand, they still hurt, right? They take something out of you, and eventually, whether you like hills or not, eventually they do wear you down. And you know this already. Whether you are a runner or a bicyclist or nothing of the kind, the truth of the matter is that life sometimes comes with hills. Life comes with hills. It comes with crises, and it comes with pains, and it comes with sorrows, and it comes with anxieties. It comes with hills. Some of you, I bet, came to this place this morning, and the hill that you're climbing is a parenting hill. Maybe it was simply getting here this morning was a parenting hill for you. I remember when, when Amy and I were expecting our first child, and a very wise parent in this congregation said to me, welcome to the hardest job you will ever love. <laughs> That's true. It comes with hills. It comes with hills. Maybe you're not a parent, but you're in a family structure of some kind. And family systems come with hills. Whether you're a parent or a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or brother or sister or cousin or an in-law, these relationships, they come with hills. Maybe the hills that are more relevant in your life are job hills. Maybe the work environment that you work in or the supervisor that you have or the colleagues that you have, you're climbing a hill. Maybe the challenge in your work environment is that you don't have a work environment and you'd really like to have one. This can be a steep hill. And sometimes it creates financial hills. A lot of us climb financial hills in life and they bring anxiety and they bring struggle and they bring pain sometimes. You tug on both ends of the rope and you're trying to make ends meet, but they just will not come together no matter how hard you pull on them. Maybe you're climbing a health hill of some kind. There's a diagnosis or a prognosis or a situation of pain that is making you climb steep. I had a friend years ago who said to me, you know how people always say, like, in a hard time, well, at least you've got your health, or at least I've got my health. He's like, well, what when I don't have my health? And he didn't have his health. What then? I mean, those are real hills. Those are real hills to climb. And sometimes I think that we think that if I'm a Christian, if I worship God, if I try to do the right thing, then the hills will go away in my life. Life will get easier. And there are things about being a disciple of Jesus that change the hills that we're on. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But the truth of the matter is that sometimes being a disciple of Jesus, sometimes trying to follow Jesus in life, will bring new hills into your life. Sometimes it will bring steep hills into your life. I bet that there are people here today who in your living environment or in your work environment, if you simply name the name of Jesus, if you simply self-identify as a Christian, it will put a hill in front of you. It will cause you misunderstanding or may even cause you outright ridicule or mocking. Sometimes this brings hills into our lives. But even if it's not the name of Jesus in particular, I know from my own experience that trying to follow the values of Jesus in this world will be an uphill climb. It'll be an uphill climb to do these things. For one thing, many of you had to climb a hill just to get here today, just to make the commitment to honor God with weekly worship, to come together on the Lord's Day every seven days and celebrate the victory of God in Jesus Christ over death over the power of sin in our lives, celebrate the work of God in our lives. You know, that's a refreshing, refilling, beautiful, joyful thing for some of you. This is a filling station that strengthens you up and sends you back out for the week. On the other hand, there are a lot of other things competing for your time, even at this hour, right now, of the day. And it's a commitment, and it's a priority decision to be here. I know you had to climb a hill to get here today. Values like generosity and sacrifice are things that are real uphill climbs in our world. Because our world tells us that all the stuff and material resources you have are meant to create blessing and happiness for you. 
And there are millions of dollars spent, I bet, every single day creating messages that are sent to you that try to convince you that if you will just buy this thing or have this thing or own this experience, then you will finally feel happy. You will finally bring joy into your life. It will finally bring to you what you're missing. And that's a lie. That's not true. Jesus can do that for you. But for you to choose generosity and sacrifice of myself for somebody else is an uphill climb against these messages. It's an uphill climb to practice morality, to practice or recover sexual purity in our world. And the reason for that is because there's so many voices that will tell you that reserving sex or sexual images for marriage is dumb and unnecessary and irrelevant and outdated. And yet at the same time, there are other voices that speak to you if you've ever felt with a struggle in this area, ever had any brokenness in this area, that will tell you now that you've done that, that you're dirty. And now you're broken beyond repair. There's no way back from there. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that even the experience of forgiveness is an uphill climb in our world. And that's because our world tries to offer us a substitute for forgiveness that is no substitute. Instead, it gives us permission. It says, oh, everything's just fine. There's really no right and wrong. There's nothing that's going to hurt you or help you more than anything else. But we know in our hearts that's not true. But that makes our ears deaf to the word of grace and forgiveness, to the hopeful, the genuinely hopeful and the healing word of God in Jesus Christ that says, look, I know who you are. I mean, I'm your maker. I know you. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. And I love you anyway. But that's a really hard word to hear in our world. Our ears get stopped up to that. Man, it's a messed up world we live in when even grace can be an uphill climb. But it is. And so to you and to me also on this day who are climbing hills, I want to speak to you a word of encouragement and hope from the stories of the scripture today. We're going to read this story of these two guys whose names were Barnabas and Saul or Barnabas and Paul. And we're going to read about this journey that God sent them on and the hills that they climbed and read the stories of the blessing that they experienced in the hills they were climbing and learn about life at the top of the hill, what the view from the top looks like and the strength required to get there. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me so we can read this together. It's Acts chapter 13. If you're using the Quest Bibles that we passed out, it's on page 1613, if that makes it easier to find. And we'll have the passages on the screens also in just a second. So turn with me to Acts chapter 13, if you will. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm kind of losing my voice here. First few verses of Acts chapter 13, I want to just uh, set the scene for you here. Here's, here's what it said. Now, in the church at Antioch, this is a city in a country called Syria, north of Israel, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And if we had time, we could dwell over what a motley crew of guys this is. If you ever look around church and go, what are those people doing here? Then you'll understand how they felt. <laughs> While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now I want to tell you about some of the challenges they faced in this journey, some of the particular hills they had to climb. But to kind of set the context, I want to just give you an overview of where they went. For those of you who like to see it from this perspective, I got a map we're going to put up here, and this tells you where Barnabas and Saul took their journey. So they start over there on the right-hand side of the map, and this is, a, this is a map of the northeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Down in the bottom right-hand corner is like just where you get to Israel, and off the left side of the map is where Italy would be, if that helps you orient a little bit. 
And they started kind of on the right side of the map, halfway up and down, in a city called Antioch. And you can follow kind of the white arrow that goes across the ocean or across the sea from the port city over to the island of Cyprus. Cyprus, by the way, is where Barnabas is from. So they kind of went to his home turf first. They went across the island of Cyprus and then up across the Mediterranean Sea in the south-central Turkey. It wasn't called Turkey then. It's called a lot of different names. But it's the area that nowadays is the country of Turkey. They landed at a place called Perga. And the Bible doesn't tell us about anything that happened in Perga. But it tells us they go north from Perga to another city called Antioch. Just to confuse you, there's two Antiochs on this map. One was Antioch in Syria where they started. This is Antioch in Pisidia. And they go from that city and they go to one more place called Iconium. I'm just going to pause there for a second because I want to read you a little scene from what happened in Iconium that's kind of representative of what happened on the first stages of that journey. I'll show you kind of how they met with some success, but it was mixed results. They also encountered some significant challenge. So if you have your Bible still, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 14, uh, just verse 1 to start off with. It says here, it's page 1617, by the way, in the Quest Bibles, if that helps. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So this is great, right? I mean, that kind of, that puts wind in your sails, fires them up. But then we continue to read the story in verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brother. brothers. Let's skip to verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. Okay, that hill kind of got steep, didn't it? Here Paul and Barnabas think they're doing something God sent them to do. They're going and telling people that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of this world that steal life from you, that the injustices of this world, that the Roman Caesar, that the, the Greek and Roman gods that are so arbitrary and capricious, and that these are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And hope and love and peace and salvation are available to all of humanity in Jesus Christ. This ought to be good news. And people, some people receive this as good news. Other people were more, uh, more committed to these other kinds of power structures and lordships, and they were upset about this, and they opposed Barnabas and Paul, and they had to climb this hill. So it says that they were under threat. So they leave Iconium, and they go to another place called Lystra. So let's, let's leave. Let's not get stoned to death, which was an ancient form of capital punishment. Let's go to another place. So on the map, you can see that uh, they go to a little town called Lystra, which is a short white line straight down from Iconium there. They go to this town called Lystra. When they get to Lystra, Paul performs a miracle in Jesus' name. He meets a guy who does not have the use of his legs. He can't walk. And Paul prays for him. And God heals him, and he's able to walk. And the people who are there in Lystra, in, the area, in an area called Lyaconia, they're amazed. And you know what? They, they read this through their own experience, through the lenses of their own experience. And they think, Paul must be God, which is not exactly what Paul went out to tell them, right? <laughs> so they think that Paul and Barnabas are these two Greek gods called Zeus and Hermes. And Zeus was the god who's kind of the head god. He's the in-charge Greek god. They thought that was Barnabas, because Barnabas was kind of the elder statesman. He was actually Paul's mentor for a while. And they thought that Paul was the Greek god Hermes, because Paul talked a lot, and Hermes was the messenger god. And so this is what it says here in Acts chapter 14, uh, verse, uh, uh, lost it. verse 11. Here you go, Acts 14, 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyaconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. 
which if they had said this about Jesus, Paul and Barnabas would have been pretty happy, but they were saying it about them. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Okay, maybe that's a little flattering. Hopefully it's more disturbing than anything else for Paul and Barnabas. And Paul says, no, 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 no way. That's not us. We're just human beings like you. We came here to tell you about God. We came here to tell you what the God of heaven and earth has done in Jesus Christ. And he talks them out of it, barely. But when he successfully has talked them out of it, the people that they were fleeing from back in Iconium and Antioch, just a little bit up to the north, who wanted to stone them to death, caught up to them. Because remember, Lystra wasn't very far away, right? So they found them in Lystra. And it says in verse 19, chapter 14, verse 19, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. And they left him there for dead. That hill came up pretty fast, didn't it? I mean, how fast can you go from, I think you might be God, to I think I need to kill you? Sometimes the hills that we face in life come up pretty quick. They come up out of nowhere, and they can be big, and they can be steep. Now, they left Paul for dead, but apparently they weren't the most precise executioners in the world because Paul wasn't dead. He recovered his senses. He got up. They went to one more city called Derby, and the Bible doesn't tell us much about what happened there. But when they got to Derby, they got their wits together, and they said, you know what? Let's go back and reverse the journey. Let's go through all those same cities that we just came through on the way here, which is a pretty bold and daring plan, wouldn't you say, to all the places that were trying to kill you? Let's go back there again. And they go back, and they go back strengthening the disciples of Jesus that they had made and left behind. And this is it's according to Acts chapter 14, verse 22. This is what they told them when they went through. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You think? That's kind of the understatement of the century, isn't it? Or maybe the millennium. So they go back through and they have a passion, a real heart for the people that they had told about Jesus, who had put their faith in Jesus, who maybe are beginning to experience some hardships themselves, and they want to tell them, hold on, I know this is happening, and it's happening to us too, but there is blessing in the climbing. And we want to tell you about the strength that it takes to get it to the top and what life is like at the top. And I want to show you now on their return journey, and on their arrival back in the Antioch that they started at, the two things that I think they learned about climbing hills that we can learn from them also. So the first one comes from this very next verse. It comes from verse 23. It says there, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Okay, just hold on for a second. So it says that they prayed and they put their trust in the Lord. Okay, that's kind of obvious. That sounds so churchy and religious that when I read it, you might even have missed it. But it's obvious to our minds. I don't know that it's really obvious to our lives. Let me ask you something. Just think about this. When is it that people really pray? When is it maybe that you really pray? And at this moment, I don't mean necessarily the dutiful prayers that you say, and sometimes you mean them and they shape you, and sometimes you just say them without even thinking about it but I mean when it wells up inside your heart and you pray. I think that most of the time we pray when we really need something that we know we really don't have. And it can be a variety of things, but we pray for what we need. 
You know, there's one time in my life, there's only one that I can think of, that I thought that my life was genuinely in danger. Like, I don't know. I could die here. I was on an airplane. I was flying in the, in the, so, in the former Soviet Union just after the fall of the Iron Curtain, and they had these old Aeroflot planes that were part of the Soviet Union that were notoriously bad. And this was like on a reject Aeroflot airplane that had Aeroflot painted off the outside. And we were flying into Moscow. And as we flew by, and by the way, nothing in the entire flight filled me with any confidence at all, okay? So we're flying on this plane. We're coming to the Moscow airport. I'm in a window seat. I'm looking out the window, and I saw the runway go that way, right past me, right? And I'm thinking, this is not good. And so I started to sing worship songs that I knew by heart, and I sang them quietly because I still love the people around me. I don't want to hurt anybody. But I was singing and praying because I knew that my life was no longer in my hands. I wanted God to know real clearly that it was in his hands. <laughs> I really needed power that I really didn't have. And it turns out I was mistaken. We were going to be okay. But that's not what I knew at the time. And I started to pray. I remember when I first became the senior pastor of this church, and a group of us, actually numbers of large groups of us, just began to pray in that time for, God, what's your priorities for this church right now? What do you want to do in us? What do you want to accomplish in this Christian community? And I remember we talked about that, and we prayed about that. And one day after that, I went back to my office, and I just hit my knees in the office and face plant in the couch, you know, right there in my office. And I was just praying because I'm like, God, if you want to do those things in this church, I can't do them. I know. I don't have that power, but you do. None of us can pull this off on our own. And if, God, if you want to do these things in our church, we really need power that we really don't have. And Barnabas and Paul are going up some steep, steep hills. And I think they prayed and put their trust in the Lord because they knew they weren't climbing by their own strength. They knew they couldn't do it themselves. You know, in fact, I think that if they thought that they were climbing these hills by their own strength, they'd have been looking for a hole to step into so they could roll back down the hill again. When they got back to Antioch, they did one more thing I want to show you here. This is Acts chapter 14, verse 27 and 28. It says, On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, just a quick question for you. Have you ever heard that phrase before or used it or heard somebody else say it, like God opened a door, or if God opens a door, then I'll do this, or God made God close that door or whatever? Think of it for a second. If you were at the end of that journey out there in Lystra and Derby and deciding together, collaborating, thinking together, shall we go back through the interior as we had planned to do to revisit all these cities, or should we just go back? Wouldn't you maybe have thought, well, we were going to go back, but it looks like God closed that door since they're trying to kill us every place we came from. Maybe we'll go a different way. But Paul and Barnabas say, God, open the door for us. Man, hills and open doors must look different in God's eyes than they necessarily do in my eyes. And when you follow Jesus, it may just be that Jesus invites you to walk uphill with him and gives you the strength to go up those hills and through doors that you thought were closed. Here's what I think Paul and Barnabas learned on this trip. I think they learned that they were not climbing by their own strength. And I think they learned it quick. I think they would have failed and fallen and gone back if they were climbing by their own strength. But they knew that, that they, the strength that they had, because they were in Christ, Christ was in them, and so they had the strength to climb these hills. And they learned that life at the top of the hill is beautiful, that the view from the top is beautiful. I know that there are those of us who are gathered here today. In fact, it may be that all of us who are gathered here today and who are watching online have hills that we're climbing. Maybe you're on one right now. Maybe you're halfway up and trying to keep your footing and your legs are burning and your heart is pumping and you don't know how much longer you can go. 
I want to speak a word of hope to you today. I want to encourage you on the basis of this story that God will carry you to the top of the hill that he put in front of you. That when Jesus puts a hill in front of you and says, follow me, that if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then it's his strength that will carry you to the top of that hill. In fact, as I've been reading this passage, I've had to repent of a little bit of a bad attitude that I developed over the years about the Christian poem called Footprints. Have you guys ever seen that poem? Anybody ever seen that like in Hallmark stores or Christian bookstores? Like I'm not big on poems printed on pretty stationery or whatever. It's not exactly my thing. But there's this poem and it says, the poem says, it's written in the voice of someone who dreamed a dream. It said, I dreamt that I looked back over the course of my life and I saw the journey of my life like footprints on a seashore. And I saw, Lord, that you were accompanying me as I walked. There were two sets of parallel footprints down the seashore. But I noticed that sometimes there was only one. And sometimes they were, and those times when there was only one were the hardest times in my life, the times of sorrow and pain and challenge. And Lord, you said you'd be with me. So why were you with me on the easy parts and why'd you leave me alone on the tough parts? And the poem, of course, at the end, the poem says that the Lord answered and says, it was in those hard times that I carried you. And I just was driven back to that image that I haven't seen in years as I was reading this story together, thinking, man, it was in those challenging times especially that it was the Spirit of God that carried Paul and Barnabas and will carry you and me up that hill. And once the Lord carries you there, the view from the top is beautiful. Life is better at the top. Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch and they discovered that there was rest and there was refreshment when they got there. That last verse, it said they stayed there a long time with the disciples. I bet they did. I bet they shared the stories. I bet they rejoiced together in their rejoicing. I bet they mourned together in their mourning. And there was rest and there was refreshment and refilling together with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Much, I hope, like you experience worship here together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That we claim the victory of God in Jesus over the brokenness, over the power of death and sin that hurts us and are filled by the Spirit of God for life following Jesus in the world. And not only is there rest and refreshment in this life, but there is rest and refreshment at the top of the hill that is this life. Because Paul and Barnabas didn't live forever on this earth. Eventually, they reached the hill that none of us climb on on our own. And Jesus carried them up and he helped them summit the mountain that no man can climb on their own power. He brought them to rest and refreshment and life eternal. And that is the promise of God in Jesus Christ for all of us. That there is rest and refreshment for us, not only in this life, in this life, but also in the life to come. And it is when you know how much God can do in you, when you know that you climb by God's strength, when you know that your identity as a child of God and your life in the power of God is secure because of his strength and not yours, that I think then our hearts are open to hear the other thing this passage says to us. And that is, come on and follow me. Maybe there's some place in your life where Jesus is standing in front of you, where the Spirit of God is nudging your heart even today, or maybe has been for some time. And you can just imagine Jesus kind of like one foot up the hill going, follow me. And you know that if you follow with him, he'll give you the strength to walk up it. He'll be the one who carries you up. But you're going, ah, there might be another road around that mountain. I think it's flatter over there. Maybe somebody else could climb that one. And Jesus says, follow me. And maybe it's one of the values of Christian discipleship, of witness to his name, of purity, of generosity, of sacrifice, all manner of things. These are uphill climbs in our world. And we can't do them by our own. We can't manipulate, manage, or cajole these things out of ourselves. But when we submit to the power of God and follow Jesus' invitation to follow him, he does it in us. 
Maybe it's witness in his name. Maybe it's just standing up and saying, my hope is in Jesus Christ as a witness to the people in your life. Maybe that's where he's calling you to. All I know is that way too often I'm tempted and way too often you're tempted to live life on the flat ground. But Jesus calls us on. And when God gave us this mission as a church community, as a family, to be and make disciples of Jesus, he was inviting us into the hills. And he was inviting us to go into the places where we can speak hope and encouragement to the others who are in the hills. And the choice that's open to us is to pray and to commit ourselves to the Lord, like Paul and Barnabas did there on the journey, is to pray for strength for the climbing. So let's do that right now. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the witness of the scriptures, for the Christians who have gone before us, who have found you faithful, and who testify to your strength and power. And God, I pray for the hills we face. God, I pray for the pain that we're in, for the crises that afflict the people in this community. And God, I pray that you would relieve them. God, I pray for hope and courage. And God, I also pray for courage and strength for the climbing. If you're in front of us calling us on, then I pray that you'd speak right into our hearts. Invite us forward. Teach us to follow your vision. For it's in Jesus' name that we live and pray. Amen. Let's continue to worship with the giving of our tithes and offerings and by lifting up our voices in praise and worship. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. Even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, Turn back and know you are near, and I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. And if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear? Whom then shall I?
minute that we can spend here praying together, and I want to just pray together for the, the hills that we're all climbing, for the challenges that we face, and I'll lead us in a moment of prayer, and then I'll leave some time of silence, and if you'd like to fill that silence with the prayers of your own life, please feel free to do that, or you can also pray silently from your heart at that time, and after a moment, I'll close us. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, you know all the hills that we climb. And your word says for us to cast our cares on you because you care for us. God, we have some cares because some of our hills are steep. And I pray for strength. And I pray for hope. I pray for encouragement. And I pray for peace. For those who know you, well, for all your human creatures, for all your creation all around the world. Where there is sickness, God, I pray there would be healing. I pray there would be relief of pain and suffering. Where there is mourning, God, we pray for your comfort, for eternal comfort, for deep and abiding peace that goes beyond all human understanding. Where there is loneliness, where there is abandonment, God, I pray for miraculous comfort, for the community of your people to come around. God, for all the challenges that we face in this life, I pray for your strength. You know what we need even before we ask it, but Jesus taught us to ask you in prayer. And so God, we lift up the situations of our lives to you as one community. Lord, we thank you that you hear our prayers. And God, I pray also for courage and for obedience. If there are next steps in life that you're prompting us toward, God, I pray that you would just go ahead and give us that nudge. Open our ears to hear you, give us the strength to follow you, the vision to see where you're leading. 
Lord, we love you, and we pray and we live. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray that God fills you with strength, comfort, hope, and courage, and that he leads you onward this week. Let's close our service in a worship song. Have a great week. God bless you.